So we're carrying on in our Ezra series today. We're making we're making headway. We're flying on through. So if you want to turn in your Bible stand, we're going to be looking at chapters five and six. I'm not actually going to read uh, all of those. I'll just be diving in and out, and we'll show some scriptures up on the uh, screen. So follow in your word if you can. But let's just start with uh, where we are up to in the story of Ezra, just as you look. And the truth is, not a good place again. Not a good place again. You know, if you remember in week one, this story started absolutely remarkably, with the nation of Israel being absolutely dead, been taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. It didn't exist. Then the Holy Spirit does his work. He moves powerfully on the most powerful man in the world, Cyrus the Great. And across the nation of Israel and over 4,000 Jews under the leadership of a guy called Zerubbabel are stirred, which is still available, I think, in the church child name fronts as well. Little, little Zerubbabel. I mean, Zerubbabel, son of Tobias. I just, you know, and I like it, I like it. Just the, we're talking about prophecy today, just so you know. Seven, seven nine months, was it? I think as well. Look at this, no pressure. <laughs> anyway, Zerubbabel, they were stirred in their spirit by the Holy Spirit of God to go back and rebuild the broken temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of the Lord in that time. And from nothing, the Holy Spirit starts the revival of a nation, doesn't it? And then week two, Butters' great preach. We see that on arrival, the exiles return to Jerusalem, and it's not all roses. They have to get stuck in and persevere against the challenges they face. And we read in chapter 3, verse 3, that despite being afraid of the people around them, so despite fear, they began open worship of the Lord, publicly declaring his name. And over the next few years, organised and laid the foundations of the temple, ready to build on top of it. And then week three, last week in Chris's great talk, we saw in chapter four that although they started well, opposition, opposition came from the people around them. People were specifically hired, we hear, in 4-4 to frustrate their plans. And as King Cyrus's reign gave way to a guy called Xerxes, leaders in the province made false accusations against them. The temple and the city were re being rebuilt for one purpose, rebellion against him. And as a result of this false accusation, they came and with force, we are told, stopped them progressing their mission to rebuild the temple. And in Chris's telling of this story, he so helpfully went to Nehemiah to look at how many years later under his leadership, the people had learned to persevere in spite of of another wave of opposition and persecution that came. And he taught some incredibly valuable lessons in how to keep going despite challenge. But at this point in the story of Ezra, the exiles didn't overcome. Despite the initial powerful move of the Holy Spirit, the clear calling, the initial triumph over fear, the initial trust in God, here the opposition, the discouragement, the fear, the challenge of living out God's calling day in, day out. 
have become too much. Well, we meet them today. Water, as if water had been poured on the flame of the Lord that started. And the final thing we read in Ezra 4, 2, 4 24, before we hit today's passage is this. The work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. What this verse tells us is that the wounds of opposition were so deep, the discouragement was so bad, that the returning exiles simply downed tools and stood still for around about 12 years. 12 years of inaction. 12 years of discouragement. 12 years of not building the house of the Lord. And then we come to Ezra 5 and 6, which we're looking at today. And you know, at this point in the story, if I was God, I think, I reckon I'd have just done a pilot and washed my hands of the exiles of the nation. I reckon my narrative to them would have gone something like this. These guys are just not getting it. I told them nearly a century ago that I was going to bring them out of this captivity and that I had purpose in it. I even said I was going to raise up Cyrus to do it through my prophet Isaiah so they were sure it was me when it came. I then turned the heart of the emperor and called out my people, promising I would be with them on top of everything I have done for them throughout the centuries. And all I ask in return is that they trust and have confidence in me, in all of the challenges that face them. Yet they fell at the first hurdle, the first set of challenges. Challenges. I'm done. I am done. But as we're about to see, and what we're about to see is so revealing of God's great character, by the way. He does not respond like I would. He never takes the calling from the people who have downed tools for so long. He never washes his hands on them. And he never gives up. His nature is not my nature. Quick to anger and slow to love. Instead, what we're about to see in chapters 5 and 6 is that he patiently waits. And then at the start of chapter 5, he lovingly reignites that which has gone out in his people. And inspires them again to complete the work he set before them. <coughs> Stop and pray. Spirit God, I want to thank you for this next part of the story. I want to thank you for all it teaches about you. God and your magnificence and your ways of working. Spirit, I want to pray that you would come as we look at this just now. Spirit, I want to pray that you would minister to us. Spirit, I want to pray that you would challenge and change us. Spirit, I want to pray that you would turn us into a people of your spirit because you're the great champion. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Should we look at how he did this? We look at how he reunited the people. Sorry, that's not the biggest text. I'll read it out to you. I'm just going to read the opening verses of chapter 5, 1 to 5. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah 
and Jerusalem. In the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatenani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shetar Bozenai, I should have practiced my names before reading this, I get that, <laughs> and associates came to them and spoke to them thus. It makes it hard when you're trying to read it with gravitas, doesn't it? Like, and you're pronouncing the right names all over the place. Who gave you the decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, who was the then king, after Xerxes. And then answer by, by return, answer be returned by letter concerning it. So what happened? Here we simply see this, that two men, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, nice fella, are stirred by the true hero of our story, the Holy Spirit of God, to prophesy. In other words, they were stirred and inspired by God's Spirit to speak the words loud and clear to the people in exile that the Holy Spirit asked them to speak. That is what prophecy is. Speaking the words that the Holy Spirit gives you to whoever he wants you to speak them to, whenever he wants you to speak them to them. Becoming his mouthpiece, his megaphone in a situation, giving flesh and words to his spirit. Prophecy is a very simple thing. And what we read, and you've got to take note of this, here is as these two men prophesied, it had an amazing, reigniting effect on the people of God. We read in verse 2, don't we, that they arose as if from slumber, I love that word, arose, and began to rebuild the house of God from nowhere. Their zeal for building the dwelling place of God on earth returned. That which they had put down in fear for 12 years, suddenly they picked up again. Secondly, we see that their discouragement is replaced with a remarkable, almost foolish, courage and trust in God. So in verse 4, as local opposition arises again, despite in the, the, ne- the last chapter getting the knockback from Xerxes' letter, here they refuse to stop their work until a letter has once more gone to the highest authority in the land, who by this time, like I said, is Darius, who replaces Xerxes, who replaced Cyrus. I'll be testing you on that later. I won't really. <coughs> And later in chapter 5, this letter of concern is sent to Darius from the local governors. And in this we see the full extent of their change of heart and attitudes. 
If you want to look in your Bibles, we'll see that verse 7 to 15 is a copy of the letter of concern sent to Darius, which initially lists all of their worries about God's house being rebuilt. And it says in verse 10 that the local governors had attempted to collect the names of the leaders so they'd know who was leading it. So if discipline was necessary, they could bring it. So that the king would be aware. And they received, as they asked this question from the Jews, which I just think is uh, poking the bear and then some. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. All of a sudden, do you see it? They got their story right again. Who are we? We're the people of God. What are we doing? We're rebuilding his temple. And it's already been decreed. We need have no fear because of who we are and what has been done. We will live the mission that God has set for us. From fear to this. What a change. What a change. And all because we read, prophets prophesied and were with them, encouraging them as they rebuilt. All because of that. Do you know, this must have been some powerful stuff, eh? Haggai and Zechariah were speaking. They must have been some great preachers. Really funny stories. Get more laughs than me, definitely. And top visuals, I believe. So, of course, this transformation could have come in any other way, could it? If only we had some more documentation of what Haggai and Zechariah actually prophesied. Then we could know what type of Reignition, what type of good prophecy looks like that can cause such a change, couldn't we? Oh, hang on a minute. Have a look at that. How nice of God. I, I knew that joke was going to bomb, just so you know. Like, just, I was just like, I'm going I'm to do it anyway. I know that slight facetiousness just doesn't go down well in a preach, but I am, I am me, and you're polite enough to listen for the full length of time, I know it. We've got two books in the Bible that are devoted to this time and teach us about Haggai. Some people might not know that. No? I think it's more that my explanation has had more laughs than my initial joke, like I say. I dispute that based on a wide body of evidence. So, so let's just have a look. Anyway, we've got some good documentation. I could have just said that. So what did Haggai say? What did the Lord give him that was so amazing that it had caused this change. Do you know, well, I, I read it and I was a bit disappointed, really. <laughs> Do you know, all he does is actually speak the simple truths in a really faithful, committed way to the people. Do you know, I want to give you a couple of examples. Haggai 1, 7-9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. My house lies in ruins, for each of you busies himself with his own house. 
go build my house, he says, essentially. Don't just worry about your own house, go build my house. It's not, it's not actually that revelatory, is it? And then Haggai 1, 13 to 14 says this. Thus, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke with a Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They're not mystical, they're not grandiose, are they? They're not packaged up, they're just truths about God, spoken clearly in a timely way. I brought you here to build my temple, to be a part of my revival people. I am with you, so get up and build my house again. Yet here, this called the people out of a 12 years story of discouragement. This is too hard. I am too hurt. We're never going to see it happen. The powers of the bee are too great. It caused them to step out of that story back into God's story. We are the people of God. We are the people of God, and Cyrus declared... You know, sometimes when we're talking about prophecies, I think we can get a bit hulala. I don't think that's a phrase. <laughs> Go with it! We can discount them though, can't we? I'm carrying on regardless. We can discount them in ourselves and others because they just feel too simple and boring. Do you know, yet often simple and boring as the Holy Spirit inside. You know, it's such a difference between, you know, me just saying God's with you as part of this, or me just picking somebody out and going, Jenny, God is with you. God is with you. No, he speaks that to you in this moment. God is with you in your family. God is with you as you walk. God is with you. Understand it in your heart. He loves you, and he is with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. It's embarrassing yet true. There's a difference. Simple. Simple, yet it communicates something of truth, of God to you. Don't dismiss prophecy for being too simple. That's what Haggai's preaching teaches us. What about Zechariah then? Well, he's a slightly different hell of fish, I'll be honest. Zechariah essentially firstly calls for people to return to him, to trust God again, simple again. 1 verse 4, we see that. Then he has a series of slightly out there pictures and words for individuals in his day. I'm not going to go through them, but he sees everything from a horseman to a man with a measuring line to a flying scroll to a woman in a basket. Should I give you, I can give you an example if you like, actually. And I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are horns <laughs> that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me, I'm not mocking the word of the Lord too badly, sorry. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scatter Judah. And on and on and on. Do you, do you get that? Do you know, I, I think, honestly, if, if you've met Zechariah from what we see written down, he feels like the sort of people who have been like, yeah, Zechariah, yeah, I had coffee with him. He's a nice guy. 
But lovely, yeah, yeah. Interesting stories. He's a bit weird. He's a bit, he's a bit strange. It's lovely though. It's great to have him part of uh, our congregation. You never have those conversations. I know. But what is so clear about the pictures that he bought was that God got under the skin of the people with them. And they communicated something in these pictures of God's great heart for the exiles. And as Zechariah seeks God for meaning in these pictures, they lead, and it flows out from the whole wonderful load of promises and truths about what God is going to do with Israel, how he's going to draw out this fresh restoration, how he's going to defeat the enemies and how he's going to bring out the messianic age. And you see these wonderful pictures that the people can hold on to in promise, even as the world around them looks difficult and hard. Now, and if Haggai says we shouldn't reject the plain in prophecy, Zechariah is the other end of the spectrum. He shows we shouldn't reject the more out there. And when this package comes in a slightly stranger way through a slightly stranger lens, actually, pictures and words, they play a clear part in the Bible and the encouragement and the ignition of God's people. Simple prophecy, slightly out there pictures and words that lead to wonderful promises. It's all there. Do you know, like, the truth is, I would not be here today in this place preaching to you, getting to know you. You might be no, a little bit upset with that fact, but if it hadn't been for prophecy, and got moving in wonderful prophetic ways of encouragement that have reignited me and lifted my head when I needed it. Some of it has been very simple. Like recently, I was in Ashburnham. I was just, I was just worrying about a few things, and we just got to pray with some strangers at the end. And one of them just gave me this very simple word. He said, "Look, I want to make God says I'm going to make a success in your life." And make a success of your life. And do you know what? It just came with the power of the Spirit. And actually, over these couple of months, as I've just been a little up and down, and there's been some worrying things in the background, it's just steadied my heart and taught me that God has been with me. Wonderful. Chris, God is going to make a success of your life. Chris, God is going to make a success of your life. He says that. I've had alongside this cricketing pictures relating to Alistair Cook, geological pictures, pictures of oak trees, all kinds of things that have stayed with me. They've got under my skin. And me and Becky have had prophecies come true in remarkable ways. Like when Becky, my wife, prophesied that we would live on Amptill Road when we lived here. There's only two Amptill Roads in the country. And then we drove to Amptill Roads when we first came to have a look around the city and have houses and uh, look at houses. And I went, no way are we living on Amptill Road. <laughs> I don't want to live in a terrace without a garden. And I went off and we went spent six months trying to buy another house on the high street in Picton. That didn't come off, during which Butters shared with me wisdom, like, Matt, it's been four months. Do you think the Lord might not be opening this door for you? Yeah. <laughs> no, Butters! This is the house he's given us. 
But it wasn't. It fell apart for six months. And we ended up in a situation where there was one day where we could come over from Leeds to find a house. We looked around six houses. One had just come on the market the day before. Do you know where it was? Amtill Road. And me and Becky walked in. It was about the third house of the day. And the spirit just came on us. We went, this is our home. Which was remarkable. It was a bit nasty. <laughs> but, we, but we loved it. And we love it. And it's the perfect place for us. And we're building relationship and community and speaking into people's lives and they're speaking to our lives there. And we're home. And there are pictures that guide me for the future. I carry a triple jump picture. Do you know when there are prophecies spoken over this church that lead me and keep me working on the temple of God? Do you know the name Freedom Church? Freedom is a prophecy. Chris and Tor were carrying it when we came to plant this church. That this would be a church where people come to know freedom from illness, from mental health issues, from spiritual captivity, because of what the Lord wants to do here. Wow, that inspires me. But more than that, it was that one day, the Lord would build this church to a place where it changed what the city was known for. That this city was built on captivity, on the slave trade. And Freedom Church, the Lord promised. Freedom Church, the Lord promised, would one day be a part of the change that would come about where this city would be known for the freedom of Christ and what he brings. Oh, that's exciting. That gets me. And along with this, I remember a, a prophecy by Jeremy Simpkins where he saw many ships coming in and out of the docks here. And as we grew, one day the Lord said, you will have a global influence for my gospel. There will be churches planted. There will be situations reached into. There will be the nations on you. Are we there yet? Every now and then. In a little way. But one day, the Lord has said. Do you know, there's been such a variety in my life of simple and slightly out there pictures and everywhere in between, to be honest, that God has served others to speak that have ultimately led to the reignition of my passions when I run dry. And what we see when we look deeper into Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah at the absolutely transformational prophecy that we see in Ezra 5 is that there's a mixture of both types there given by God. And this is what God uses to switch on Israel's faith and boldness and mission again. This was not amazing preaching, as far as I can see. It was simply obedient and faithful communication of what the Spirit asked them to communicate whatever package that came. So what happens? When they wake up from slumber and boldly trust in the Lord in response to prophecy, does the God who woke them up leave them hanging? No. We find out that as they put themselves back in a position of faith, God is proven once more to be faithful. Do you know, just an aside... 
You want to find out if God is faithful, put yourself in a position of faith. Say, Lord, where do you want me to step out? That I have to trust in you. Because if you're not in that place, if you're all in, I don't need to know if God's faithful. I'm, you know, like, I'm just, I'm cosy. I'm, you know, we talk about it all the time, comfortable, don't we? We need to be, this is a prophecy, I think. We need to be a people who step into a position of faith. Or we will not know a faithful God. Got it? Leave here and ask him, Lord, where do you want me to step into a position of faith? Daily, broadly, so I may know you're faithful. So as we read through chapter 6, just highlight some things. Darius, the king of Persia, recovers Cyrus's decree that the temple should be rebuilt. And he makes a magnificent royal decree. I love this. In 6-8, these guys who are maybe expecting the backup from their king, their champion, to come and say, stop this temple. He says this. The governance of the province should pay for the rebuilding of the temple out of the royal revenue and give the Jews whatever is needed for their work. And he says colourfully in verse 11, If anyone in the province alters or disobeys this command, then we will take the beam from their house and impale him on it. Imagine if you cried out for help and got that response. <laughs> yeah. But basically say, look, yeah, this is going to happen and you're going to pay for it out of your kitty. This is going to happen. Then we read in 6.15 that four years later, the temple of the Lord was completed. The ministry in the temple started once more. And the chapter finishes with a great celebration of Passover the people remembered once more that they were saved by God alone, publicly. And in the final verse, chapter 6, verse 22, I want you to notice how much this differs from when they stopped work for 12 years. It differs so wildly from the quenching. We read this. And they, the people of Israel, kept the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This was the fruit of prophecy that produced faith, that revealed faithfulness, that brought about joy in the Lord. That's the story of Ezra 5, 6. It's a good one, isn't it? What do we learn from it? Just very quickly now. There are two things I really want us just to fix our minds on from this morning, from this. The first one is this. You know, there's a lot of talk about our God out there. That if I've heard it said, if you don't do what he wants, he's going to give it to someone else to do. I, I just can't recognise tell myself with that view and what I see in the Bible. No, he might call somebody else to do something similar. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to totally put it in a box. But I am going to say, like, we just don't see that in this story. And we don't see it in the whole of Israel's history where he just keeps coming back to this nation. He doesn't go off and choose another nation. In Jonah, who runs in the opposite direction, 
No, there he gets him eaten by a big fish and spits him back. Do you know, all the deep forgiveness of the cross, or how many times he tells us to forgive, I just don't see it in the character of God. This story speaks so strongly against this. In fact, as we look at God's reaction to the Israelites, we realise that God always knew that this revival story that we're looking at was never going to be outworked through his people's great faithfulness and ability to trust him. But by his great commitment to the people and the ongoing work of his spirit amongst them. It's what Chris brought, isn't it, at the end? It's his spirit. Not by strength, not by might, but by the spirit of the Lord. Do you know, God has always known that our hearts lean towards standing still, downing tools and fear. And that repeatedly throughout our lives, we're going to need to be reignited by him. And this part of the story teaches us that regardless of the fickle nature of our hearts for him, where we might burn hot, we might burn cold, we might down tools for a long period of time, for a short period of time, he is the God ever patient and ready to ignite our flame and redraw us into the victories that he wants us to live in and the roles he wants to play to our calling, to our gifting. I think that is far more consistent with the God that we read about in the Bible. Secondly, don't despise prophecy. Don't despise prophecy. No, I've been chatting to Chris and Chris about this recently. I realised that something in my heart towards prophecy had gone a bit askew recently. And um, so this has been quite healing for me to look at this verse, actually. And um, it's like when I was a younger leader back in, back in Gateway. You know, get some great leaders come from Gateway, I think, if I do say so myself. <laughs> they, um, I am making a point. I had, my, my heart was like a deep well for prophecy. I was so excited by it. I just wanted to dip in on all occasions. I wanted to speak the word of the Lord into people's lives. I wanted to deliver it in a way that encouraged, that lifted up. And I realized that my heart had come to a place where it wasn't a deep well with this anymore. It was, it was a bit arid. Now, there were one or two drops, and I'd, I'd step my toe in every now and then to those places, but, but it had dried up. I don't know, I actually don't know what it was that did this, whether I heard some teaching, whether, um, do you know, whether I'd been hurt, well, I don't know what it was that caused it, but this was the place in my heart. And I realized that what had actually come, happened in me was that a slight contempt for me both prophesying and for prophecy had come about. And contempt, literally, as I look at it, it means I'd, I'd sort of just moved it down. I'd, I'd decreased it in value in my heart. It didn't have a high worth. It didn't have a high value. I could just put it to one side and focus in on some other things. And you know what? The Bible says, do not do this. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. It's dead clear. That is a command as far as I can see it. Do not have that view that had developed in my heart to prophecy. There's a bit of disobedience in there from me. There's a bit of not looking at the word and working out why that has gone in my heart. Because it's there, it's clear. Instead, he says, I should have had this heart to it. 
my heart should still have been like a deep well to prophecy. I should have eagerly desired the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. It's what the New Testament asks me as a Christian to have my heart right with that. Do you know, I don't think there are many places in the Bible that underline why we should heed Paul on this matter and not let the importance of prophecy and God's purposes slip quite in the way that these two passages in Ezra do. They show so clearly and evidently that whether it comes in simple words or slightly mad pictures through the Holy Spirit moving on us, this is one of the ways a faithful God wants to reignite our passions when they inevitably grow dim. It is, has and will always be one of his mighty graces to us that his spirit, through his spirit, he speaks word to people to speak to us, to reignite us. Prophecy is the spark for believers and non-believers coming alive again with the call of God on their lives. And the only difference between the Old and New Testament when we're looking at these two characters in particular is that rather than just coming for one or two men, the Bible now tells us post-Jesus and the Spirit coming on us and the Spirit being in us that has been poured out that all may prophesy. It's for all believers. So all can hear the voice of the Spirit. All his sheep know his voice. All can speak the truth and encouragement and boldness to each other. Be given pictures and promises. All can be God's spark and encouragement that ignites the life of God in another. When I mention all of those different words to you and the effect they've had on my life, they've come from all different places. Uh, leaders, new Christians, do you know, people who bug me, butters even. <laughs> saw that coming. Listen, giving and receiving prophecy that ignites and encourages us is to be a rich part of our Christian experience. It is God's grace to our fickle hearts and the way he reignites us through the spirit. That is what Ezra 5 and 6 shows. Do you see it? I want to finish just with prophesying, if I may. I want to prophesy to those who have downed tools through discouragement and hurt and a 12-year lull, maybe. doesn't matter how long it's been. And I think the Lord just wants you to heed the words of Haggai this morning, just in a gentle way, in his loving, his fatherly way. Consider your ways. Build my house. Come once again to build my house. Build my house if you've down tools. Build my house if you know you've down tools. Build my house. Build my temple. Don't let it lie in ruins. Don't let it lie in ruins. It takes work. Come on board with me. Build my house. Build with me. Don't just focus on your own houses. Build with me. Build my house. For I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. That's why I'm with you, Freedom Church. I'm with you, Gateway Church. 
I'm with you. I'm with you, visitors from other churches. I, the Lord, am with you. I think he wants to speak to those people who have the gift of prophecy, but like me, just put it in their back pocket a bit. So that one's for a later day. And he says to you, do you see the worth of the gift I've given to you this morning? Do you see the precious thing in the life of church afresh that I have given to you? Can you see it? You see it afresh. Treasure it as such. And prophesy. Prophesy. You bring your words. You bring your pictures. You hear my voice and you be obedient to me. Because I want to bring good things out of it. I want to bring people into relationship with me. The greatest gift of all. I want them to be adopted by me. I want them to come to know my fatherly embrace. I want to re-stir their hearts. I've given them callings. I've given them jobs to do. I've given them purpose. Please prophesy. See my church burn, not whimper. And finally, to those people like me who have just undervalued prophecy for whatever reason, I feel like the Lord just wants to gently come and just lift whatever has doused your flames in that area. I just feel like he just wants to come and minister you very quietly and just speak to you and say, listen, we are to be a people of the word and my Holy Spirit is there. That leads you to prophecy. That leads you to the to the foundation that that has a place in the church. That it is of great worth because it's because of from me. Let me minister to you, please. Let me just restore you. Let me love you. Spirit of God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Ezra, Lord Jesus, in this great book. Lord God, and Spirit, we thank you so much for all you're doing amongst us. And Lord, we just want to invite you just to keep moving, keep building your church here. We love you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening.